follow you through seminary. And so Drew, my son, he's my youngest, is uh, halfway through, and he just finished his homiletics class, and I heard him preach. He did a great job, and I had surgical procedures on both feet. That's why I'm hobbling a little bit and quite sore. I didn't feel like standing up here, so I said, Drew, why don't you preach? So he was really nervous and said, okay. So by the way, in the fall, Stefan, our very own, yep, Stefan, is, uh, he's back there behind the camera. Stefan is taking homiletics, and he's going to be up here preaching this fall for his sermons. So it's really great. So, Drew, thanks for coming and for bringing us the word. Have fun. Well, good morning. I'm really happy to be here. Um, nervous as I am, um, I'm really happy to be up in this beautiful place. I mean, I think this is probably paradise. The weather is beautiful. The mountains are white. This is absolutely fantastic. I am especially happy to be preaching out of James because I think James is probably one of my all-time favorite books of the Bible. I think I have a lot in common with James, uh, with our personality. He is argumentative. He's kind of obnoxious. He's the little brother of Jesus. And if you grew up with uh, the guy who thought, and was correct, but thought that he was the God of the universe, I mean, you have to be pretty shrewd, I think, to hold your own. And so James talks to us uh, in a very direct way, in a very bold way. And he talks to us actually kind of like a prophet would. Um, The way that sometimes we think of a prophet is maybe someone who tells the future. And in this case, I think he's a prophet in the way that he tells us truth into our community. And he asks us hard questions and he, you know, he forces us on the narrow path and he kind of like realigns our focus on what we should be looking at. And so in this verse, he's so direct. I mean, he starts out with this brilliant direct question. He says, what good is it? Can this kind of faith save him? And he asks these really practical questions, I think, uh, questions that we are asked all the time by the world, whether we know it or not. Um, I think people that are looking at what we do and they see these strange things we do, like we sing songs together to a God that we can't visibly see and, you know, we drink grape juice and strange things like this. And people look at it and they say, like, why do you do that? Like, what is, what's the point of it? And James asks us the same questions and we should have answers to this. Like, what good is our faith? What are we, what are we here for? And so he gives us an example. He says... If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what the body needs, what good is it? And this is a really good question. Um, I think in our modern day, maybe we're more accustomed to the the language of, you know, thoughts and prayers, or someone tells us they're going through something hard, we say like, well, I'll pray for you. And that's good. Um, Maybe the secular world says, you know, positive vibes or positive thoughts, or I'll keep you in my thoughts, things like that. But James has a really good question here. Does that actually do anything? And I'm not here to talk about, you know, the big grand questions of like, does God listen to our prayer? Or could we change God's mind? I would love to talk about that all. James is a little bit more practical than I am. And I think the, the answer to his question is that the prayer is good, but the prayer doesn't fill the stomach of someone who's hungry. And the prayer doesn't clothe someone who's cold and who doesn't have shelter. And so the example here that he's talking about, I think really what he's got in mind is a parable that Jesus told in Luke. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So you might be familiar with this, but I'm going to go ahead and read through it. This is Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 25. Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I would stop there. If Jesus gave me a gold star, I would stop the conversation. I'd be done. But the expert, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story, classic rabbi, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. But when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side of the road. So too a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, who was traveling, came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in religious law said, The one who showed mercy to him. So Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. I think we, in our modern day, we don't really have Samaritans. We don't really understand one little point that Jesus is making, that was it the priest or the Levite? You know, was it, was it the guy who knows everything about all the rules of being holy or the guy that is, you know, perfectly religious that does the right thing? No, it was the Samaritan. Samaritans were looked down on. They were unliked. They were half-breeds ethnically. They were unclean people. And they're, they're the, the hero of Jesus' parable here. I mean, Jesus says it doesn't matter how holy you are. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters what you do. And I think this is rolling around in James' head when he tells this example here, when he says, you know, does it do any good if you just say, go in peace, keep warm? Well, no, it's the neighbor that helps him. It's the guy who actually looks after his needs. He takes responsibility for him. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to the end. He gives him his own money, and he looks after everything that the guy needs. So James continues, and he says, So also faith, if it does not have being by itself. And I think that's a great message. And that might not be brand new news to you. I mean, that's, that's how religion works. It, you know, you, you, you help people. That's what Christianity does. That's what the church does. But I think the brilliance in this is that James anticipates, even our modern day, I think he even kind of anticipates me. Uh, I don't want to leave it that simple. But James does. In the next verse, he says, But someone will say... You have faith and I have works. Someone will come in here and make it complicated. Come in here and they'll say, well, you have your way to do it and I've got my way and you can do your thing and I'll do mine. And James says, no, that's not how this works. He gets so argumentative here. I love it. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. He says, show me this thing that's invisible, basically. Your faith without works doesn't exist. If you don't live out your faith, it's... It's nothing. It's not here. He says, you believe that God is one? Well and good. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. We see this in the Bible, and it's kind of strange for us to think about it this way, but the demons live in the supernatural world. They see probably things more directly than we do. They probably know truths better than we do in some cases. We see this in uh, Mark 1. Jesus is casting out a demon, and the demon is kind of talking back to him, which is not a smart idea in my opinion. In one twenty-four, the demon says, Leave us alone, Jesus the Nazarene. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
So the demons even know this. And this is James' point. He said, if you just, if you want to see faith by itself, if you want to see these beliefs, you want to see this, you know, this cognitive agreement that we can have maybe to truth, but you're not going to live it out, this is what it can look like. It's useless. Instead, I think the answer to how we're supposed to live it out is actually earlier in that verse. He says, you believe that God is one. Your translation might say, you believe that there is one God. I think what James is doing here is a, it's kind of a call and response almost. Um, he's beginning a sentence, and his readers are probably finishing the thought that he's beginning here. And so it's kind of like um, in our churches today, like, you know, on Easter, if we say he is risen, you say he is risen indeed, automatically. Don't have to think about it, right? Some of our liturgy in other churches too, you know, in higher churches, like, if we say, uh, the peace of Christ be with you, you say, and also with you. Maybe I do this when I'm watching Star Wars and someone says, may the force be with you. I expect them to respond, and also with you. <laughs> um, but I think what he's referencing here is Deuteronomy 6.4. This is, this is this keystone moment. This is this core place to Israel's relationship with God, to the religion, to their beliefs. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Listen, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. And so right there, we know the response to the belief that God is one is that we love him with our entire selves instantly. And so I think the congregation that James is writing this to, they read that, you believe God is one, and they knew right away, and you acted out. And so he's playing the devil's advocate here, and he's kind of, he's arguing with them, and he's like, well, do, you, do you really want to talk about what faith looks like when it's by itself? Do you really want to see that it's useless? And he asks the question right after that, but would you like evidence, you empty fellow, that faith without works is useless? He doesn't even answer that question. He says, do you want evidence for that? Too bad. I'm going to show you what it does look like. And so he continues with a couple examples. And he brings up Abraham and Rahab, which are both stories from the Old Testament. The story of Rahab is a little shorter. We'll start with that one. Um, Rahab is a woman in the Old Testament. We read her story in Joshua. She lives in a little military fort called Jericho. Uh, Jericho is a little speed bump on the way toward Israel conquering all of the promised land where God has given them an allotted amount of land where they can, they can grow as a nation. They can, they can flourish. And he's wiping their enemies off the face of the map in front of them. Um, everyone who defies God just gets eliminated. They're gone. So she owns an inn in Jericho, the military for it. And one day, two guys come in to stay in her inn. Um, a king's messenger, uh, the king of Jericho, um, he comes to Rahab and he says, uh, there's two men that are staying with you. They're Israelites. Turn them over to us. And she in an instant, in a snap decision, she says, oh, they just left. They're on the road. If you go now, maybe you can catch them. So the messengers run off and try to catch the guys on the road. She turns around. She hides the Israelites on a roof. That night, she goes and talks to the Israelites, and she says, I know who your God is. I am terrified of him. What do I need to do to be saved? And they said, your fate is the same as ours. Gather your whole family in your room, and they'll all be spared. And so she saves the Israelites, when the Israelites come back to attack, she gathers her entire family, her, her parents, her siblings, her kids, everything, and they're spared. The entire fortress is destroyed, but she saves her entire family through this because she was afraid of God. She knew what God had been doing. She had seen the enemies in the land that had been just absolutely decimated. 
and she acted on it. And so this kind of bravery that we see from Rahab is the kind of mentality that James is asking us. He says, do you want to see what faith does? Faith saves. This is the faith that saves. The faith that acts. The faith that sees what God is doing and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And he continues with the story of Abraham, which is an emotional story. It's a, it's a tough story to follow sometimes because I can't imagine the kind of hurt that Abraham had to think through with this. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this. This is in Genesis 22. So a little bit of background on Abraham. God promised Abraham and his wife Sarah that they would be basically the parents of a nation. And this was hilarious to them because Sarah was barren. Sarah was old by this point. They weren't about to have kids. They weren't, they couldn't get pregnant. They weren't about to have a family. And so when Sarah hears the angel tell Abraham, you're going to have a son, she laughs. And that's what they named the son. Isaac means she laughed. He laughed. And so they're given this impossible miracle, this thing that neither of them could understand that doesn't make any sense, right? But Genesis 22, chapter 2, God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up there as a burnt offering. That doesn't make sense. This is, this is the miracle. This is the beautiful, the impossible thing that they laughed at from God, right? And he wants to take it back? Well, we see an odd, an unfound amount of humility in Abraham's response. The next thing he does, verse 3, Early in the morning, Abraham saddled his donkey. I don't know about you. If God gives me this impossible miracle, this wonderful thing that I want, and then he says, give it back. Am I going to get up early in the morning? No, I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to stall. I'm going to argue. I'm going to make excuses. I'm going to be the guy that James is talking about that says someone will say. And I'm going to say, well, for me, it doesn't make sense. I don't know what God is doing. I'm going to pray about it. Like, let's pump the brakes. Let's think about this. Abraham doesn't do that. He gets up early and he saddles his donkey. He prepares. And more than that, he doesn't even have the end of the story. We know how it ends. We know the pain that God is asking Abraham to be willing to go through. First of all, he stops Abraham. He says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. I see that you believe in me. I see that you trust me. And God provides a ram for sacrifice. But more than that, God gave his son. God gave his only son, whom he loves, Jesus. And so God understands he's asking Abraham He understands the sacrifice because God gave Jesus. He knows exactly the kind of action that he's asking for. More than that, as Jesus, God got to experience what it's like to be sacrificed, what it's like to go through the excruciating suffering that is the human experience. He lived both sides of this. And we have a God who asks us to follow what he does. He doesn't ask us to do some terrible thing for his own gain, he saves us from it. This is what our faith does. Our faith saves. And God is here acting in the world with us and through us. And so if our faith saves, when we act it out, we take part in God's rescue mission. We are his instruments in the world and we are his tools. And so these examples that James is using, these are heroes of the Old Testament, right? I mean, these are, these are people that are given opportunities that no one else is given. Like, 
As James says with Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. Not many people are called God's friend. Not many people are given this grand option, this, this amazing conversation with God where he asks something like this. Most of us, I think, live in the real world where we don't live in a fortress that's going to be destroyed. Um, and that's who James is writing to. He says, look at what our faith can do. Our faith can save. Our faith is huge in its capacity for the grace that it can give and for what it can do in the world. But the example that he gives to us initially, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food. And so he's saying, look at our community. Look at the needs of those around us. Not only that, but take responsibility for them. Find those needs and approach them in a way that solves them. He specifically uses kind of a passive tone in this response. So the negative response, the guy says, go in peace, keep warm and eat well. Well, those are passive things. He says, keep warm as in like be warmed and like be fed. So his example, the guy kind of says like, well, I hope someone feeds you and I hope someone clothes you. He says, go in peace. So he's kind of assuming like, well, someone will take care of you. You know, I hope God takes care of you. But we are the instruments. We are the ones who God works through. And so our faith enters into this world and our faith is lived out through us. And our faith saves when we act it out. And so James is calling us here as a prophet to act out our faith because our faith does save and our faith does beautiful things. And in this case, he's saying, look at the needs of the people around you. Look into their lives. Make yourself vulnerable to them and accountable to them for what they need if you're able. In our modern day, I mean, especially right now in the middle of a pandemic, we're in a strange place. We can't necessarily serve each other how we normally would. We don't have the option to just get together and talk always. Uh, You can't really talk to a lot of people face-to-face very easily, right? So, like, how do we find these needs? Well, I think in a community, we have to work to keep that community closely knit. We have to work to keep each other in communication, right? I think one way we can do that is James' suggestion of praying for people. That's good. That's a great place to start. I would challenge you to something I've been working on myself and something that gets uh, passed around a lot in the chaplaincy part of uh, seminary is pray with people, not just for people. And so I'm terrible at this, and I'm trying to work on it. Um, So hear me when I say, I know this is hard. But when someone says, going through this tough thing, you know, when someone says, like, quarantine is really hard because, I don't know, mentally it's just really draining, or, like, I can't work and I don't know what I'm going to do financially— and say, okay, can I pray for you right now? Can I pray with you? And you'll find, if you open yourself up like that, people are so willing to share the needs that they have. Because if you say, I'll, you know, I'll pray for you this week, then they say, cool. Really the end. At least for me, if you ask me what I want prayer for, and you're going to pray right then, I'm going to be very specific, because you're asking God for it. I want to get the right thing. I want to make sure you know what to say. And that also puts the burden on you when you pray with someone, because then you know what they need. You know what they're looking for, you know, if it's food, if it's money, if it's clothing, if it's, maybe they just need someone to talk to. Right now, in our current situation, if we take a passive tone, if we say, let me know if you need anything, or, you know, we say, maybe to God, we say, like, you know, if if anyone needs help, just put them right in front of me, and I'm ready to help them. That doesn't always work. So many people don't know how to ask for help. Uh, We have rising depression. We have rising suicide rates. 
And if you've ever been depressed, if you've ever been down in the darkness like that, you don't know how to ask for help. You don't know what you need. And if someone says, let me know if you need anything, like you're not going to go to them and say, yeah, I really need a friend. I really need to talk to someone. I really need to pray with someone. But if you open up the conversation, open up the dialogue so they can say, yeah, I really need help, then you're serving that person's needs. You're going into their life and you're making sure that they're getting what they need. Some people just need physical stuff right now. Some people need food. Uh, not everyone can shop. Someone's at risk and, you know, if, you, if you're in a really dangerous place where if you get sick with COVID, then you might not make it. You're not going to go to the grocery store. So some people, they just need to be fed and it's that simple. Maybe they need groceries. Maybe what they need is just someone to talk to because they're lonely. Maybe what they need is money. Not all of us are in a place to give all those things. And so as a community, when we come together, we can look at the needs of one another and we can say, well, I don't have money to give you because, you know, I go to seminary and I work as a barista. I have no money. But as a community, I know that our church has money. And I know that now that I know you're in need, let me figure this out. Let me see what we can do to actually get you what you need. And so James is challenging us in this way. He says, look at what our faith does. Our faith saves. And he answers this question the world often asks us, that, you know, like, what good is your faith? What does it do? James says in the beginning, can this kind of faith save him? Our answer is yes, our faith does save. It's our job to act it out, and it's our job to put our faith into the real world and to look to the needs around us. We have to do it responsibly right now. And so be careful. I'm not challenging anyone to put God to the test and say, like, I'm going in, no mask, I'm not going to use hand sanitizer because God's got my back. Like, let's be safe about this. Let's be smart. Uh, I don't want to be liable for anyone doing that. But there are plenty of things we can do. We can pray with people. We can serve them. We can look for their needs. And we have to believe that our faith saves, and then we have to act it out. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for using us as your instruments. We thank you that you're a God who lived in this world and who walked as a man, and you know how hard life is. You know the difficulty of helping people. You know that people don't even want the help sometimes that they need. You know how much work it takes, and you're there to bolster us up. And so we pray that you would give us the courage of Rahab, that you would fill us with this just indomitable bravery that when we see a way to act, we take it. We ask that with humility, we can look at the gifts that you give us knowing that they're yours, knowing that they don't belong to us. We don't own them. That as you give, you can take. And that we trust you, Father. And so help us to humbly and bravely act in this world as you save humanity. Amen.